Greetings, everybody. This is Hear Her Sports, and I'm Elizabeth Emery. This week's guest is climber and coach Blake Kaysen. Recently, Blake returned to more traditional alpine climbing after years of bouldering. The history of that is a little bit more involved, so keep listening. Blake's vision of rock climbing is definitely about the sport of it. We talk about training and other preparations. What's also very important to Blake is what climbing has taught her about herself. Her excitement for being in the mountains is so very obvious and contagious. Blake is an integrative wellness coach. She explains exactly what that means and how she approaches her method of coaching and why it's so special. Make a note, she works with her clients over the phone as well as in person and offers 20-minute free discovery calls. Find out more on her website, BlakeCasonCoaches.com, or go to HearHerSports.com to see her photo and get that link. In today's episode, she offers some tips about emails. I love that and her thought that not doing something you love can be just as stressful as doing something you don't love. She covers a lot more than that, so let's get to it. Well, welcome. I am just so thrilled that you reached out, and I want to start out with rock climbing since, you know, your original message to me was, you know, I'd love to share my story of how climbing lights me up and makes me the stellar coach I am. So yeah. talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So my my journey with climbing has been in some ways, pretty short. I've only been climbing about five years and climbing on kind of like a performance progression based way in the last few years. And in those last few years, I hear a lot of comments of like, wow, like you've really, you've really progressed. And it was not a linear progression by any means. And that's what has been so incredible. And so educational and so kind of um, life expanding is how much I've learned about myself through climbing. And that's, I think, one of the biggest reasons why I keep coming back to this sport is because it it teaches me more and more about what I'm made of every time. And, and I find new ways to appreciate uh, my community to appreciate the outdoors and to appreciate humility. I think a common a common thread for me in my climbing journey has been letting go of my ego and 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 letting letting myself struggle and be seen struggling. That was a, that was something that challenged me a lot at the beginning of my climbing experiences was allowing people to see me struggle, and and I learned a lot from that. Mm-hmm. So I've done a fair bit of guiding climbing um, with at-risk youth, and it's such a powerful tool, both in that kind of facilitated way. It was my favorite thing to facilitate for these for these young people, um, but also, like I said, in like a, a personal awareness way is that perceived risk is really high. We think we're going to die because we're so far off the ground and we're hanging, we're clinging to this, this vertical rock face. And so perceived risk is high. Was that an issue for you? Um, I, I think at the very beginning, um, you know, just starting to climb, there was, there was some, uh, there was definitely, the presence of like, this is scary. And I don't know. And I I feel unsafe. And then as my climbing got, as I got more comfortable climbing, and started pushing myself more, the the risk 
for me then became falling. So not necessarily hitting the ground, but falling onto my rope. And, and that was because I think climbing takes a certain amount of boldness, not our confidence. Um, Boldness can sometimes sound like, oh, you're going to take risks when you don't have to, but confidence of this, I can, I can make this move. And even if I don't stick this move and I fall onto my rope, that it's going to be okay. And that was a struggle for a long time. And, and something that actually in my personal life, in my circle of friends, and as well as a coach, I've met with several female climbers and something that they've struggled with is like, I know it's not scary to fall on my rope. I know this rope is strong. I know my harness will catch me. I know my belayer will catch me. But there's this perceived risk that when you're falling through the sky, that that is uh, uh, unacceptable. Like that is that is as risky as it it seems when really it's not and it's quite safe. Um, but that was that was a big hurdle and something that I had to to overcome to become the strong at peace climber that I feel like I'm becoming more and more all the time was just trusting myself and trusting um, my belayer, trusting the gear so that when I did peel off the rock, when I did try hard and give a hundred percent and still not stick the move that it would be okay. And that I could pull back up and try it again and fall again. And, um, and that's, that was, that was the turning point to me really relaxing into and wholeheartedly loving climbing um, was letting go of the static of that fear. Hmm. That's interesting. Is that yeah. at all related to what you were talking about before with your ego or is that, is the ego totally different? Um, I think, I, I think so. That was, that was a big lesson just as I was starting to what I call like the try hard climbing when I was trying to progress and, and get stronger and was the, the ego of like, of letting people see me try and try and try and try and fall and fall and fall. Um, and also feeling that within myself that, well, if I'm trying and failing, it must mean I can't do it. And that, uh, I think that seeing that in climbing was the first time I'd ever realized that I'd never really like no one had ever told me that it was that to succeed takes so much failing I'd never I'd never really appreciated that reality because we highlight successes we highlight you know in the climbing community we we highlight this person sent this route they they climbed this mountain they they did this thing they succeeded but we don't always highlight all of the blood, sweat, and tears, and sacrifice, and failing that it took for them to to distill themselves to that success. So to me, I was like, well, if I can't do it right out of the gates, then I must not be able to do it. And that, yeah, that's such a small perspective. And yeah, I, I uh, it was something that I had to to grapple with in a big way in climbing and then in, in my own life that it's okay to, to lean into something that inspires you, even if, uh, the outcome is not certain. I think with, with social media and stuff like, um, we just see the, the, the people that are seemingly nailing it, 
and they're like, oh, it, it can feel like, oh, they were born for it. Like I never considered myself an athlete. It's only been in the last few years, like really the last maybe two or three where I was like, I'm pretty sure this little body is can be an athlete and can can push itself physically because it can feel like oh people are just born into it like you're just an amazing ice hockey player you're just an amazing cyclist you you're you're you have an incredible lung capacity wow like just born with it but with passion and inspiration there's a lot of traction in that too right you also don't have to be a superstar exactly exactly yeah how did you start rock climbing? You said you just started five years ago or so. Yeah, I I started um, when I moved to Salt Lake City. So moving to Salt Lake City was in pursuit of a wilderness therapy guiding job. And so wilderness therapy guides are super active. And we work for eight days in the field with these students. And it's like really intense, super concentrated. And then we get off for six days and everyone just goes on adventure. So with my climbing guides, several of them climbed and they kind of they dabbled in climbing. And so I, I tried it out and really, really liked it. Uh, I have a pretty um, pretty good body awareness kind of like kinesthetic knowledge so feeling feeling shifts of balance while I climbed um and and how that allowed me to to climb better in some ways was really exciting and so part of it was the community around that was what people were doing and there's a ton of climbing access in Salt Lake City so that was very was very enabling of climbing and so I dabbled in it for a little bit. And then one summer I was like, <laughs> I, I remember telling a friend driving back from Moab, Utah, after climbing my first multi-pitch climb, I looked over at him and I was like, I want to be a climber. And he's like, well, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> and um, it was something that yeah, at the time and continues to inspire me on so many levels, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, getting outside like I said, it really lights me up, and I felt it in that in those initial experiences. And I, I, I th- and maybe this is something that that you can relate to when you find something that lights you up. It's it builds its own traction. Like it, addiction sounds like a strong word, but in some ways, it's like I want I want to feel more of this. I want to see more of what this can be like, and how how many, uh, you know, how much what this can feel like if I have a little bit more skill and confidence and yeah. Yeah, definitely. I like when you get to that point and, you know, like almost progressing further doesn't require any answers. Like, of course you're going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Like I I think, and, and that to me feels like that traction when a passion that you have, whether it's a sport or a creative passion or whatever it is, when when it connects with you on such a deep level, it's like, of course, of course, this is going to build on its own. Um, right. And it's not a slog anymore because it aligns with you. It aligns with your values. Um, and that's, man, that's really important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what were you doing prior to uh, rock climbing? Prior to rock climbing, I had a very developed yoga practice. I've been practicing yoga for now probably about 15 years and and right and before that and kind of overlapping my start of yoga I ran track for four years of college four years of high school and two years of college um so 
and it's funny I that even with that like I still never considered myself an athlete I just had just happened to run fast and um and really liked the team like liked the I think more I, I liked the track meets and I liked getting to connect with my team I liked I liked working with my coach and learning things to me even now thinking about it, it's like it wasn't about the sport about running fast or or the points or whatever it was it was just like just this experience that I that I really really liked and I never thought of it quite as a physical pursuit for some reason. <laughs> so you said you had a yoga practice yeah was that you know like once a week at a class or more rigorous than that? More rigorous so I, I started what got me into yoga was was track actually because at my college there happened to be a yoga class right before track practice and I was like well I'll just get um, a little extra stretching and I'll try this thing. And this was 15 years ago. So well before it was popular. And I come from a pretty small town in central California. So it was not a thing. It was a fitness class, essentially. I, I loved it. I think in, in some ways similar to climbing or similar to any sport a person is passionate about. I like I got into it. I liked it. And that built traction. So I kept practicing. And then it increased probably every year until about five years in, I was practicing for an hour and a half every day um, with a group of people. And that was when it really, 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 I, I built my relationship with yoga. And I built my I think and started building my relationship with my body that yoga is this for me and continues to be this really beautiful practice where I get to feel my body move and be aware of my alignment and be aware of um, kind of my brain body connection in a practice that, you know, after 15 years, just kind of moves through my body. I don't have to necessarily think about the movements that I'm doing because, you know, I've been doing it for so long. And so it becomes a meditation or a medi-action, I like to call it. Mm -hmm. I like that. We're going to talk about meditation in a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, do you do other cross training? And I asked that in part yeah. because you said to your uh, traveling companion, I want to be a climber. So are you doing like weightlifting or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So that those are the things that um, right now, that's a lot more the focus of what I'm doing, because my goals are a lot more around alpine climbing. So bigger mountains, which require a lot more hiking and a heavier pack. Um, which I'm pretty small. I'm about five two and and very small framed. So um, for me to be able to, you know, hike three hours, climb for eight hours, and repel and descend, you know, to for me to be able to to do like an eighteen hour day, my body's got to be really strong. And naturally, it doesn't have as much strength endurance in that way. So I do have to do a fair bit of cross training. Um, I do a lot of deadlifting. Um, that's actually what I consider like the biggest bang for my buck uh, as far as weights. And it, it's a, a very effective weightlifting technique for climbing because it it teaches or it's that muscle memory of engaging the whole kind of muscular system at once and in an explosive way, which is really helpful in performance rock climbing that you can engage the whole body as opposed to just the arms or just the legs. So I do a lot of weightlifting. I try to run a few times a week, uh, again, for just cardio, for just like, just um, kind of durability, cardiovascular durability, um, maintaining that. 
And I do a little bit of biking, but not as much right now because I'm, I'm traveling. And then yoga. Yoga is a, is a really important cross-training for me because as, as I build muscle, as we build muscle um, in whatever we're doing, maintaining the, the, the elasticity of those muscles is super important. I definitely found that as I got more involved in climbing and then tried to and then went back into my yoga practice, my body was so stiff and so tight. Uh, it was very strong. But it had uh, lost a lot of mobility. So that's back as part of my cross-training routine in, in a big way. Yeah, I, I imagine that. Yeah. What are your goals? You mentioned alpine climbing. Yeah. So what are some of the goals for that? Yeah. So this summer, my goals are around alpine traditional climbing. So you're mostly climbing cracks and you're placing your own protection as opposed to clipping permanent bolts in sport climbing. So my goals are to um, to just dive back into that. I, I did a lot more trad climbing probably about two years ago. And then I took a ground fall. A piece of gear pulled out and I hit the mm. ground. Yeah, it was, it was rough. Um, and definitely rough on my, my – like we're talking about that perceived risk – Right. My my perceived risk of trad climbing went through the roof. Um, and so instead of fighting that, I just turned to sport climbing and bouldering, which was which in the end, I think, was the best way to do it because I got a lot stronger and way more skilled technically at climbing. Um, so now as I return to trad climbing, I have a, a much stronger, more refined um, technique that now I I can push myself. Um, so my goals are, I'm headed to Squamish soon. So Squamish outside of Vancouver in BC. So I have some some route goals there. Mostly just, um, I've never been there before. So it's exploring a new area. There are a few specific routes. But in general, just like, just continuing to, to progress in what for me is essentially kind of going back to school of climbing. I developed a proficiency in sport climbing. And so now switching styles means um, going back to school and, and being humbled by having to pursue like kind of easier grades, I guess, of crack climbs. So that's for summer and then for fall, some goals in Yosemite Valley. So Yosemite is like the epicenter of granite uh, tried climbing and I've been there before. So going back with some goals uh, to climb some bigger things there than when I was there probably three years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who are you climbing with? Uh, it depends. Sometimes I'll be able to connect with partners and friends that I know, but the really, to me, great thing, and one of the things for sure that I love about climbing is the community. So I'm really fortunate to have a pretty big community of climbers that I know. And, and then, you know, by proxy, they're very, we're all very connected. You know, they have a ton of connections. I have a ton of connections. So I often will just reach out like to a friend and, Hey, do you know somebody in Squamish right now? Or somebody, in fact, for Squamish, I, a few years ago, met this really great couple when I was climbing in Argentina and they're from Squamish. So 
I'll get to reconnect with them and climb with them. So it it's kind of hit or miss. I, I travel a lot solo, which can be a little stressful in finding partners. And it also pushes me to meet new people. And those connections are almost always really, really incredible. So it, it's hit or miss for having consistent partners. But for the most part, I'm always able to find people that are fun and safe. And those are the most important things. <laughs> right, right. And how are you prepping for the trips for the non-physical needs for the trips? Um, What do you mean? Uh, like, what are you bringing? What are you uh, packing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you wearing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for for Alpine stuff, the the really important thing for me is having layering options. Um, that's that's one really big element. Uh, like if you're going way up into the mountains, having you're going to be stuck at a belay for and not able to move sometimes, like literally be hanging there, not able to move for an hour, an hour and a half, or sometimes more. So bringing things that'll keep you warm enough while you're possibly in the shade or in the wind and, and definitely a high elevation. Um, so, so preparation around having enough layers, like a really cool trick that I learned from uh, my friend Madeline was, so a lot of times you're in your climbing shoes, but your climbing shoes are often really tight. If you take off your climbing shoes, then your bare feet are just like hanging in the cold wind or whatever. Um, so she keeps socks in her pockets. And then when she takes off her shoes, puts the socks on. And it is a, it is a game changer. Just having your feet a little bit warmer. So uh, around keeping warm, things like a windbreaker and socks can be like, can just totally change the game because by the time, so if you're, you know, belaying somebody and you're, you're sitting still for an hour and then you have to climb it, it can kind of, kind of wreck you. And, and in, in many ways diminish your performance, especially if you're trying really hard in the Alpine to be cold and stiff. Um, so that's definitely an added, uh, difficulty or consideration in alpine climbing is um, how to keep yourself warm enough so that you can try hard and not injure yourself and also food. So other ways that I prepare for climbing in the alpine, high calorie and compact food. I'm definitely a big proponent of real food. I'm a nutritionist and over the years of climbing, I've, I've kind of refined my my climbing food systems into uh, as much real food as possible. So like um, higher calorie nuts, like walnuts or macadamia nuts or something. Um, I use, I do do some bars in the Alpine, especially and, or like making, making cookies or, or um, energy ball uh, kind of concoctions with like lots of butter and honey and, um, high fat, high carb, and some protein, something to to give you a lot of energy and calories without adding a lot of weight or weight to carry or adding a lot of like weight to your belly. Because um, if you're trying hard, having like a heavy full belly is so unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Are you able to describe what it's like you know, to be out on a rock in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's, 
Uh, I, it's funny as you're as you're saying that question, I felt it. So let me let me see if I can put words to it. I'll, I will try my best because it is such a a magical and and really inspiring and a, a big reason why I, I climb um, is that because to me it feels quite a bit like having almost having a conversation with the rock or with the mountain and. And that's something I love about climbing is that whether you're bouldering, so something like 15 feet or sport climbing, something like 100 feet of climbing, or you're climbing a whole mountain, like 1,000 feet, to me it feels like I'm having a conversation with this section of rock as it is. The the mountain is not changing for me. It's not going to be like, okay, you're tired. Let me Let me decrease the angle so this isn't as difficult. It, it feels like, um, yeah, it feels like I'm having a, like a one-on-one, like a real talk with, with this, with this mountain and, and, and that I get to tap into all of the years of experience and the years of blood, sweat and tears and dedication and sacrifice that allows me to even if it's a moderate route that allows me to ascend an easier route quickly or a difficult route that allows me to, you know, climb this section of difficult climbing because, because of that investment and because of that, the love I have for, for this sport. And yeah, it, it, it feels, it makes me feel very small interacting with these things that are way bigger than me. And that's something that I really love. Like anytime I watch surfing, it's something I'm reminded of that those waves are not changing for those surfers. The wave is going to do what it, it's going to elicit what's moving inside of it, whatever, based on the moon, based on the tide, like the wave is going to do its thing. And then we as humans get to, with our skill, hopefully interact with it in a safe, exciting, joyous way. So that's that's kind of what it feels like to me. It makes me feel small, but reminds me of all the all that I've invested into getting there. That's really nice. It reminds me of sort of the yin and yang theory. Yeah. You, know, you got to work with work with what you're given or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked about your climbing. So how does that influence your coaching? And, and, you know, I think maybe we should start by, <laughs> I'm not entirely clear what you do in coaching. So maybe a, a description of yeah. uh, what you do. Yeah. So I'm a, um, a wellness coach and I focus on habit and behavior, especially as they relate to creating a sustainable, healthy lifestyle. Um, a lot of folks come to me because they've kind of, they've tried and failed and maybe tried and failed again to create sustainable, healthy lifestyle in whatever that means for them. Um, and what they find often getting in the way is habits and behavior. And so I, I call myself a kind of a habit or behavior anatomist because what, what I end up doing with my clients is peering into the structure of 
um, habits, behavior, or lifestyle and seeing what's working and what's not working. Like it, it quite literally feels like almost like a mechanic peering under the hood of like, hmm, so we see a leak there or we see like this this tube is busted Hmm. Like, let's let's like look at what's attached to that and and see maybe why that's becoming a problem as you define it. I work with a lot of young professionals, but but primarily people that that want to live a more healthy, active life and have more activity and play in their lives. Um, So helping them find the the space to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example of, of like, can you share a success story, for example? Yeah. So one of my clients, very high achieving, and um, she was struggling with work productivity. So kind of diving into what she was seeing happening was like she would she would sit down to work and then get sucked into like these kind of menial tasks and not get things done the her bigger tasks like her dissertation and writing writing a uh, essentially a journal article that she needed to submit for review to an academic journal and so those are her big tasks and yet she found herself sitting down and getting totally waylaid by other things so we it's a really cool process to me and and really inspiring and empowering to sit down with somebody and really objectively and lovingly look at like look at something that could be deeply frustrating them because she was she was coming to me with like this is not working I'm not getting my stuff done because that's really stressful right when you're when you have something to do and it's not and you're not doing it that can feel really really frustrating so she was at that point where she frustrated with herself and in that frustration, kind of didn't know where to start. So we sat down and kind of looked at what were what were the behaviors? What was kind of preceding these getting waylaid into emails for hours that weren't getting anything done? And then what were the the outcomes that she was feeling from, say, something like the needless time spent responding to emails? So we looked at the habit cycle. So preceding the emails she would feel a sense of stress and a sense of I don't know where I'm starting and then she'd be like well I know I can start by checking my emails great and then she would get sucked into checking emails and then afterwards she'd feel a sense of accomplishment because yeah her email box is clear but her dissertation wasn't any more written Um, so something like that through, through some conversation and through some trial and error and processing um, was instead of sitting down to uh, a blank screen and no direction, um, at the end of each day, she'd write down where she needed to start the next day so that when she sat down at her desk, she could just hit the ground running um, instead of sitting there like, where did I finish off? What do I need to do? What was my priority today? That she had essentially a map for her next day that directed her towards her outcome producing tasks and not just the, I guess, kind of seemingly outcome producing tasks. And what happens to the, all the, the inbox, the email inbox? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I try not to give like advice or, um, you should do this, but there are a few things that I'm like, this is, this is some pretty helpful stuff. So 
something that at least for me works really, really well around email or around those kind of menial tasks is I limit my email checking to in the morning and in the evening. So it's like I I, I function off of a, a calendar, not a to-do list. So I schedule when I'm going to do things and, and I, I create chunks of time, especially if it's a big task. It's like three hours of producing, you know, three hours of recording this tutorial. And at the beginning of the day, 30 minutes of checking my email. And then that's it. And then I, I close out the screen. I don't go back to it until later in the day. I set aside that time. Because, yes, we do need to check our emails. We need to respond to those things. And they can be huge time sucks. So being aware of time sucks is especially, I mean, for somebody trying to trying to live a, like a, a full value, like highly active life, we don't often, we, you know, you don't have time for, for a six hours of climbing or a three hour ride if if you're not managing time in a pretty conscious way. So that was something that I, I've had to work through as an entrepreneur with my own private practice and as a climber is prioritizing my time and not squandering it, but also not squeezing it, you know, not being too time stressed, but also respecting it as a valuable resource because it's, it's, it's a resource just like anything else. How do you manage not taking on too much? And, and just using yeah. the email example, some emails must go unanswered. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a that's a great example of yeah, some things you just you just can't do it all. And that that is something that that I struggle with and have to be aware of as as, as a solopreneur, you know, it's it's me and my private practice or even even honestly in climbing that I get really excited about training or excited about an objective and um, sometimes it can be hard for me to, f- to focus on one thing because there's so much I'm excited about. Um, I'm a, I'm a pretty high energy person and, and, um, very susceptible to inspiration. <laughs> so there are times when I have to, to step back and be like, whoa, I'm spread way too thin and I have way too many plates spinning. What's going on? So, um, I think a kind of a guiding light for me is what's in alignment with with my priorities right now is one thing. So reflecting on like priorities and values and keeping that in mind and what's going to produce the outcomes that I'm looking for, because some of those emails are very outcome producing. Some of them, like I, I, um, I teach nutrition at a college in Salt Lake city. Some of those student emails that I'm getting I don't need to respond to right now <laughs> because some of those student emails are students that are not using their resources and they're just wanting me to answer all their questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are the ones that that get tabled and I'll respond to them when I have a little bit more time. Are you good at saying no? <laughs> um, hmm. I with my students, I had to be and, and I've been I've been working as a, a kind of coach, teacher, facilitator for a long time now. And um, in, in different capacities, you know, as a wilderness guide and as a teacher and in a lot of ways, teaching college is a lot like being a, a wilderness guide to teenagers because they're, you know, college students are scared and overwhelmed, just like teenagers in the wilderness are scared and overwhelmed. It's 
it can become a habit to to just turn to somebody else to say, solve this, help me, tell me what to do. And I've, I've totally felt that as well. When I was first learning how to climb, um, I had a mentor who very strong, very experienced, um, and in some ways was really enabling where I would just turn to him and be like, I don't know what to do, or I'm afraid, will you take this pitch? Yeah, I, I think I've had to, to learn that to say no is in a lot of ways to give somebody the space to do it on their own and to, and to feel themselves rise, rise to that occasion. Because I think as much as I learned from that early mentor, there are a lot of times when he could have let me rise to the occasion and I would have learned so much. It would have been the harder thing to do, but in the end, I would have learned a lot and I could have taken that home. But, but it can be really seductive to do the easy thing first and then it's way harder later. And sometimes saying no is saying, you've got this, you can do this, and I'm here. You know, like, I'm here to spot you, I'm here to to support you, and you got this. Can you go through sort of the nitty-gritty of your process? You know, like, I call you up and say, hey, I'd love, I'd love yeah. to work with you. Yeah, so I'll start with... In in coaching, it's kind of, it's called like a discovery call. We'll, we'll sit down and look at what is the biggest your biggest concern or like your biggest pain point is one way to put it. Your the the thing that's like the glaring, this sucks and I hate it, <laughs> or the, this sucks and I I want to change it, or or I want to feel this and I I don't know how. Um, so we'll sit down and uh, and look at that together. And, and for me, that's, that's a really powerful and intentional phrase. It's like, we're just kind of looking at it. We're like looking at the parts, looking at what it's connected to and starting to understand it together. And in that initial, initial sit down for me, my, my goal is to see how, how we can get some small wins around that to start because small successes are so, they're so empowering and they're, they're, there's such an incredible base to to try a little bit more and try a little bit more and give a little bit more time and effort into something if you feel if you feel it start to build traction. So as we as we look into whatever whatever you're struggling with kind of in the biggest way at that time, we'll look at some ways to just right off the bat either understand it validate it and maybe make some small adjustments, like small bite-sized adjustments that usually produce some, some, some outcomes, some positive outcomes for the person. And then, and then from there, as we continue to build a relationship, we're going to look at the anatomy of that behavior or habit and how it's connected to other parts of our lives. Because we're, we're as humans, we're so interconnected we all you know our body systems are connected mentally emotionally physically you know like that that things have deeper and deeper roots and the really cool thing about about coaching is that we we don't just get to look at we don't just talk about it um kind of like the the typical therapeutic mental health model it's not about just processing and understanding it we take that processing 
understanding and awareness and then we get really actionable about it and that that's I guess that's kind of a nutshell of what coaching coaching is is it's really action oriented but it's based on developing really in my practice uh, developing a lot of self-awareness around what's working and what isn't working and and why Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like what you said on your website about sort of being aware of what energizes you and what drains yeah. you. I think that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, that that's a that's a uh, one of the the really significant elements from which I coach because it's so incredible how much some of the things we do or don't do can be energizing or draining. Like I've definitely felt, um, you know, as I was just starting my business, there were times when I was struggling to get clients or perceived that I was struggling to get clients. And it was really draining to not be able to coach and to and to sit down with people in this way that for me is so, so close to my heart. It was draining to not work was draining. And and that is not always something that we think about of doing something or not doing something and how it how it affects us and and then how that reverberates in our lives. You know, um, those times when I was feeling drained because of what was going on, you know, just getting off the ground in my private practice and how it affected my climbing, how it affected um, my sleep. Um, yeah, sure. I, I don't know. Yeah. I The human experience is so cool and so beautiful to me because of things like that. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's one reason I was interested in what you do with just the integrative aspect of it. Yeah. What kind of tools are you using with your clients? Yeah. So I have a a really big toolbox of kind of reflection tools. So so to me, something like energizers and drains, that's a tool. Um, it's, It's kind of a reflection tool. I do a lot around like smart goals and goal setting. Smart goals are is a, a way to kind of in many ways flesh out a goal so that it has like a lot of detail that you can track and um, it's a really powerful technique like details and it's time bound and um, relevant and all these things but also a lot of value-based reflection and processing of understanding of our values and how they connect with what we're doing in our lives I also use a lot of mindfulness practices. And so to me, and in general, mindfulness is kind of the bigger umbrella under which meditation exists. So mindfulness is just being aware of the present moment. And that's hard for in our in our modern society. We have a ton of distractions. We are selling our attention in so many ways. And so to work with individuals on being aware of what they're thinking and feeling and how it could be affecting them is a really powerful tool because if we're not aware of it, we're just succumbing to it without understanding. It'd be like, you know, you know when, you, when you step off a curb that you don't see that it's there, and it's kind of jolting to your body and mm-hmm. because you're, you're shifting, your body is like shifting in this way that you hadn't anticipated. Um, so if we can just see the curb, we can interact with it appropriately. So if we can see and feel and understand what's going on with a little bit of mindfulness, we can then show up to it with, with more of our, um, w- with more of our 
skill and tenacity and and peace of mind. But if we can't see it, if we're not if we're not mindful and we're not aware, then we're just kind of strung along by these internal or external experiences that we could just be ignoring. What advice are you giving your clients on how to sort of stick with meditation? I mean, I've had a lot of guests say that they yeah. really would like to do it and then just yeah. it just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I, so I, like I said, I've been practicing yoga for about 15 years now. And a big part of that is meditation. So I've been dabbling in meditation for that many years and existed under this, this story that like I can't meditate. I can't sit and meditate. My mind's too active. I, I do medi action. Like climbing for me is a huge medi action. I can, I am so focused on my physical body and the rock. I'm so focused on what is exactly happening. My physical body moving on this piece of rock that it, it is, you know, one of the, another incredible reason why I love the sport. So for, for me, um, and this is a, a way that I work with clients is start small meet yourself where you're at and if where you're at is i can sit i can sit for 30 seconds baby sit for 30 seconds <laughs> that's uh <laughs> yeah that meet yourself where you're at because again like 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 stepping off the curb that you don't expect if if you're trying to resist your your brain you're not doing anyone any services by forcing it. So in my experience with developing a seated meditation practice, which took me a long time, it was just being gentle with myself and starting small, starting with five minute guided meditations. I used Headspace for a while, which is a really great app. It has free 10 days or there's another one called Insight Timer um, that's free and has a bunch of different recorded meditations that you can use forever for free. But uh, yeah, use use a guided meditation app for two minutes. Um, start small, meet yourself where you're at. Use these resources like guided meditations either on an app or online and keep practicing. Because like I said, you know, we're selling our attention to these really, really, uh, again, to use the word seductive, these really seductive things that, that want to take all of our attention and, and it can be hard to revert that attention back to ourselves. So keep practicing, keep, because meditation is a skill. It is a skill like anything else. It takes practice. Our brains are going to want to skitter around and want to stay in in a really highly active, really all switches flipped up, ready to fight or flight at any moment. Our brains exist in that for a lot of people all day. And I was totally the same. Um, I I experienced anxiety for many years and and I called myself a warrior, but really it was anxiety because my brain was moving so fast all the time that it almost created anxiety just because I was such a fast thinker. So for me, the practice of, of mindfulness and meditation has, one, allowed me to learn how to slow down my thoughts, which creates a lot more peace and calm in my physical body. It also has allowed me to recognize when my thoughts start to speed up which for a long time felt like the normal, but also was not very, just wasn't very conducive to clarity of thought because they were just 
racing all the time. What makes your method different or special, do you think? I think it is different because of that, that integrative approach. For one, that's a big base of how I work with clients that, you know, we have these four body systems and they they all interact in these really cool, beautiful, in some ways kind of complex ways. Um, and also because of my years of experience with health and behavior change from sexual health communication, which is tricky and complex to teens and their families. I uh, worked at a, a mental health clinic teaching mindfulness practices to people with suffering from very deep, very severe depression and anxiety, schizophrenia. So I have this really, really broad experience of how to understand behavior and habit and how they impact a person's lifestyle. Um, and as a nutritionist and a yoga instructor with a lot of years of experience, I can also support my clients on the physical plane. Yeah, the, the integrative model isn't just a model. It's also how I can and do support my clients in understanding, you know, something like meal prep, but also understanding something like mindfulness and understanding something like my back hurts when I sit at my desk. I can meet them there because of my knowledge of anatomy and the physical body. So I think that's what makes my practice different is the width and the depth of, of my experience in health and wellness. I like that you mentioned nutrition because I always like to ask about nutrition. Yeah. Talk to me about meal planning. Yeah. Oh, I love meal planning. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, um, man, we're, food is so important and, and it can be, food is so important to our physical bodies, but it's also this thing that impacts our, you know, our emotions, our, our mind, and just something so simple as the calories that we put in our bodies. And so I've actually worked with a lot of clients around meal planning because I work with a lot of busy people and they, so they're maybe athletes that want to eat well or, you know, feed this, this, uh, this kind of machine of their body so they can do their sport. Um, and also a lot of working professionals that, aren't able to be as active and, you know, they're sitting behind their desk and they don't want to overeat or undereat or eat the snack machine junk food. So for me, meal planning looks like always having whole foods in my, in my refrigerator and in my pantry. I focus on produce and on, I'm, I'm, I eat meat, so lean meat, free range organic meat. Um, I don't eat a lot of it, but the, the meat that I do consume, I want to make sure that it's really high quality. And I like to, uh, keep my meals fairly simple so that they're easy to prepare. Um, and for me, what works really well is I have maybe about a dozen things that I make on a very regular basis so that they're things that I like, they're things that I know are well balanced and healthy and delicious. And I don't have to stress about what I'm cooking. And for some people, they like more creativity, like they, they want more um, new recipes in their lives, they want to explore more. And that's awesome. It's not really my style or, or doesn't meet my needs on average, because cooking is not my priority. 
but eating good food is. <laughs> so it also means that I do like kind of bulk grocery shopping so that I have food and then I can use it and and not have to go grocery shopping every few days. So I I'll buy groceries for about a week. I buy a lot of things in bulk. It saves money and it, it's still, it's like whole, whole foods like whole grain rice and a lot of healthy fats. And when I work with clients on nutrition and meal prepping, uh, again, it's it's a lot about the anatomy of, of their lifestyle and what, what their values are. Because if their values are more creativity in their cooking, a meal plan or a meal kind of processing around meal planning is going to look totally different based on what a person's values are, essentially. And it's, it can feel a little strange talking about values around food for people, but you know, we're living our values. We're, li- we're living based on our values and priorities. So in many ways, we might as well acknowledge them because if creativity and novelty is a value, then let's find a way to meet that need. Uh, and that, that's why I love coaching because it, it helps people meet their, meet their values and live a life that, that makes them feel happier and, and is more energizing. We're talking about energizers and drains. So if creativity is, is a value for you in cooking, then that's going to be likely going to be pretty energizing to find a way to fit it. Right. I like that you include the cooking part in the meal planning. Yeah, yeah. What's one of your favorite recipes? <laughs> I One of my favorite recipes, I make what I think is a really delicious gnocchi. So it's like potato dumplings. And I like it because I, I don't eat a lot of gluten because it makes my belly swell. And so... I like it because it doesn't have gluten in it. And I think one of the main reasons that I like it is it's really simple. So I prepare it a lot when I'm out on climbing trips. So, you know, we're out camping or I have a lot of friends with converted vans or when, you know, when we're out camping to greater or lesser extent, whether intense or whatever, it's super easy. And it feels like this really, it doesn't feel like camp food. So that's one of my favorite meals because I end up making it on most climbing trips. It always goes over for me really well because I love it. And and also for my, my climbing partner, climbing groups, because it feels like it's not just thrown together. I don't know. It's like a stir fry, whatever veggies are about to go bad, whatever. Um, it sounds very fancy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like gnocchi with peppers and sausage and kale and pesto. And yeah, so that that's one of my favorites it, because I think it's delicious. But it also it has I have a lot of memories of sitting around a campfire eating gnocchi. <laughs> nice. That's very nice. Yeah. It's been really great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. I yeah. appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your time. No, thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay, stay well. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to you for listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. Spread the word about fantastic, strong women speaking up and doing amazing things. Please subscribe on iTunes and encourage people you know to do the same. It really does help more people find the podcast. There are some fun episodes already in the can, so keep listening. Thanks to Agnes Studio, the blog, She Rides Her Bike, Gold Mines, and Leap Strategies for super support and partnerships. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye-bye.
Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.